Good morning and welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in on this Monday morning, April the 27th. Thanks for tuning in. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It's 9 a.m. on the East Coast, 6 a.m. out west and all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in. We had a, a packed show today because for most of the hour, we, uh, we were able to recently uh, catch up with Paul Kennedy of Soccer America. And um, they've just entered their 50th year um, in operations. And uh, we brought Paul on to talk a, a variety of uh, U.S. soccer subjects. Um, and we dig into the Development Academy and, and other observations that he's um, seen over the decades um, and things he's seen over recent times as well. So that's coming up here in just a minute. Uh, but before... We get to that. I, w- I just want to uh, say that our sponsor for the show today is Ductic Brand, D U K T I G Brand.com. And you can learn more about Ductic Brand by going to ductibrand.com. And if you find something you like, maybe maybe it's for a player in your house, maybe for maybe maybe it's a thank you gift for your your son or daughter's coach. Um, but when you go to checkout, use promo code DWSHOW. You'll get 10% off of that order at ductickbrand.com. And again, most of the hour today is, uh, is our interview uh, that we were able to do, a Zoom interview with Paul Kennedy of Soccer America to kind of... Uh, you know, pick his brain on uh, what he's observed, what he's seeing, and and what he thinks is um, going to be the landscape looking forward, at least in the near future. So that's coming up here in just a minute, right after this message from DuckDickBrand.com.
like to uh, welcome in Paul Kennedy of Soccer America to the show. Paul, welcome in. How are you? Good. Thanks very much to have me today. I'm, uh, I'm doing well. And uh, like everyone, I'm just hanging in there trying to uh, stay safe and uh, uh, take advantage of the good things we have, you know, which right now is we got good weather out here. Um, at the same time, try to figure out what's going on and see how all the th crazy things in our world are going to impact, you know, the sport that we love and have worked at for a long time. Speaking of uh, the sport you've covered for a long time, before we get into the actual coverage, uh, you guys are, have, are entering your 50th year, Soccer America, and, uh, you know, big congratulations uh, to you and Mike and everybody who's been involved or associated with Soccer America. Uh, there, there's something to be said for that longevity. So I just wanted to say, you know, congrats on that. Uh, any 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 big plans with uh, with Soccer America in your 50th year in, in, in terms of any kind of anniversary type of additions or special um, we're, projects? We're talking, we're talking with a number of people about doing uh, something, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, um, with displays of what we've done through our history and at some events during the course of the year. But obviously right now, so much depends on these events, you know, taking place, which we just don't know. Um, but um, at the same time, you know, when the 50th, 50th year started a couple of weeks ago, I made sure that, you know, just people knew about it, but at the same time, it was like everyone having a birthday these days. Unfortunately, uh, you know, celebrations are pretty muted these days, and uh, hopefully we'll have more, like everyone else can go out and celebrate their birthdays with friends and family uh, in a bigger way soon. Yeah, uh, I hope I hope uh, I hope so. Uh, I think uh, you know it. An accomplishment like that, with all of the 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 upheaval and and the comings and goings within American soccer, the fact that you guys are still around fifty years later uh, should be something that uh, I think is celebrated. And, uh, and so, hopefully, you guys well, get I mean, the chance. I, I, you know, thank you very much for that. And uh, a couple of things I would say, and I mentioned at the time was is that. You know, probably the thing I'm most proud of is that we're probably as relevant today as we were when we started it. And the point being that Soccer America was able to, uh, you know, find a voice for soccer in the early 70s because there wasn't one. Obviously, today it's different where with the Internet and with so many people growing up knowing the sport, it's a lot different. But at the same time, many of the issues that soccer faces are, still remain the same. A lot of it going back to uh, issues at the local level of just simply how you make the best and how for your uh, for your players, how you make the best opportunity for your club and, and, and going forward. And so that a lot of that hasn't changed. And, and it goes to the fact that soccer as a sport 50 years later remains a very imperfect thing. Right. And, and uh, you know, and, and it's always been, I've, you know, I've argued, you know, I guess I put it this way, having been involved now for 50 years, I, I look at everything that's happening today with a little uh, more reflection, obviously, and, and aren't, you know, and will take into account how much it's progressed, but also take into account how much of a struggle it was and how much that, you know, when it started out, it started out with nothing. And that what has happened since then is everyone trying to fast track the development of the sport where so much of what 
uh, is really necessary for a sport to take hold is its passion within uh, you know uh, fans and within players and with families, which is a generational thing, which can only take time. And so we're trying to make up for time. And so many of the mistakes that are happening and many of the problems that are happening today are because of that. And I can look at something like, you know, one of the things that's been in the news the last couple of weeks was the uh, demise of the development academy, where, you know, there were a lot of good ideas around it and a good a lot of reasons why it started in the first place. But, you know, it was trying to uh, take so- soccer and put it on steroids at a point in time where, it, you know, it, you know, it wasn't going to accomplish or solve the problems that existed at the time. Yeah, I mean, when I when I look at the Development Academy, I think the, you know, there were a lot of aspects of, you know, making high level development a priority, like as a as a big kind of global theme. I, I have no problem with that. Like, you know, around the world, professional clubs typically lead that charge, um, and and so trying to, you know, create some, some better structure in that area. Um, you know, try to, you know, I think honestly what happened is I think that, I think the Federation got scared at a moment when they needed to, to go all the way in and be willing to lead and be bold. I think they got scared. And, and, and this is what I mean by that when they started and they said, we're going to bring in, you know, some structure and we're going to kind of inject ourselves into the youth uh, space because right now it's the wild west and you've got every alphabet soup uh, sanctioning organization running variety of programs. And we're going to try to bring in some standards and, and, and kind of create this uh, official high level uh, because we're saying it's official. It's from the Federation. Therefore, you know, no other alphabet soup organization could be above us because we're above them. So this is the top. That element, I don't think was, was bad um, in that attempt where I think they got uh, a little scared was what they really needed to do was not put a bandaid on the youth soccer ecosystem. They needed to finish the surgery it's like they made the cut and they opened the wound and they never, they never healed the wound. They just said, Hey, let's stick a bandaid over it. And they, they ran, ran kind of youth soccer for the 1% at the top. Uh, but they never finished. Had they gone through and basically said, okay, Hey, we're, you know, this is 2007. Let's say by 2010, we're going to add a tier two and this is how it's going to look. And here are the regions where it's going to function. And then by 2015, it's going to be tier three and here's, and, 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 and actually bring the administrative responsibility that's in their bylaws for them to do to bear. I think the country would have been better off. I just think they got in there. They got a little gun shy to, to finish that job off. And then they just kind of left it where it was for the most part. And, and, and I think they got sidetracked focusing on some of the wrong things, like making every team play the same four, three, three formation is one of the dumbest things they ever did. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with everything you say. And, and I think it goes back to uh, in 2007 when it was formed, um, 
the issues they addressed were the were not just at say the level of 14 to 19 where where they started a development academy it was below it was what was going on uh, you know in the soccer experience of a kid from 7 to 13 you know which is just as important as the 14 to 19 and they got a little bit uh, you know focused on the older one which was which was something that they could organize but i agree with you totally that if they had gone all in and reached down to a you know quote second tier and reached down to not so much you know a you know running leagues for kids you know 7 to 13 but but being much more quicker in how they address the issues there i think you know it would have been better off i think the other thing which is which is the you know the you know the soccer conundrum it's the sports conundrum in in the modern age you know today is still is so much of it is driven by parents and um i think one of the and i know you've talked about it a lot in certain contexts I, I listened to your show with uh neil boothy of the federation about a month or two ago where you guys were talking about you know does the federation have any outreach into the issues that you were addressing and that's something that uh has never been you know solved and to some degree the parents have a vo not a voice but have you know have a control over the dynamics what goes on in youth sports greater than any organization that exists and the point being that 50 years ago 100 years ago when other sports were get going parents had very little say in it in, in that it was you know kids going out to play you know the parents weren't involved and um you know high school was able to develop as as the main institution of sports in this country largely you know for 50 to 100 years the same in college in a certain way and soccer never had that or never decided to take advantage of that and you know um today with the with the way parents run kids lives it's um it's uh you know to me that makes it so much harder for the federation to implement things in that the question is even if the federation wanted to how would they push back from parents you know making decisions where you know most of the times unfortunately they're uninformed decisions about what's best for for their kids in this case in 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 playing a sport that uh you know that we're involved in um and it's something where to me it's like you know going back to 2007 the federation talked about things like phrases like you know put the players first you know which is again i believe that it's you know it's a big part of the uh us club soccer um programming and their philosophy but i guess the question is why do you have to say that i mean that's right. sort of you know if, if, if that's not what is there to begin with is you know there's something wrong and, for sure you know and and uh you know i came across a story that we soccer america done in 2007 that mike watala did about the start of of the development academy and and one of the the sort of one of the architects of the program was kevin payne who at that time was, um, I'm not sure whether he was with, back with DC United, but he had been involved in MLS since its launch. He was very close to Sunil Gulati, and he was the head of the Federation's technical committee. And he said, is that, you know, their goal was, was to find ways for parents to measure the experience their children had in soccer more than wins and losses. And um, my point would be is that, if that was the goal, um, 
that's going to be a very tough one because one, how do you ever measure that? And two, that's nothing, something for a parent to measure, you know, right. that's for a kid to measure. And, you know, if you were to ask, you know, a child, his youth sports experience in soccer or baseball or any activity, and then compare it to what the parents think it is, it's never going to be the same. No. And, and I think to, to your point there, that's where the, the leadership of the federation is needed because even now in this recent uh, termination of the development academy program, they've left a giant void. They basically said, we're going to outsource our duties and obligations again fully as, as, as we were before 2007. We're going to abdicate our responsibility. You're going to have the alphabet soup. MLS is wading into that conversation now. U.S. club soccer, U.S. youth soccer, and others continue to be involved in that, in that you know, uh, conversation. And, and I look at it, and, and, and you talk about the parents, you know, and how that leadership vacuum has an adverse effect on the American soccer family uh, and the American soccer experience uh, really comes down to me uh, is a, it's a leadership issue. Every problem is a, is a leadership problem. And, and when you, when you look at the lack of clarity for a family, like when you have kids and you bring them home from the hospital and you start raising them in your community, if you're a basketball player, you have a pretty good idea from an early age what their path would be to make it to the NBA if your kid was good enough. Like, you, you're going to play in some local city league basketball program. When they get a little bit older, they may play a little AAU travel basketball type of, of program. They're going to play in their middle school. They're going to play in their high school. Right now, they're, gonna, they're likely going to go play a year or two of college uh, until or if the NBA, which I think they probably will change that rule where the kids have to go to college. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see that change again, but right now they have to at least go a year to college. And then from there they could go to the NBA, but you generally know what that pathway is. The NFL draft is going on, uh, this weekend as we're doing this interview and those, those football players, American football players, generally knew what their path was to get to this moment, to get drafted. You go to an American soccer family, ask them what their pathway is, and then you sit down and, with them at a board and say, here are all the options. It's, it's a spaghetti soup of alphabet no, and, and numbers and, and, and no clear direction. This is where I think the Federation has, has missed it. Not providing clarity has basically forced parents into a position where they have to be overly involved because if they're not navigating the path with and for their child, there's no clear direction of where they should go, you know, because you have U S club soccer running their program, U S Y S running their program. Now MLS is going to enter running their program. Who, who's to say one's program is better or is a, available in your area. You know, I mean, there's just so many, questions and not enough answers um i think to your point i agree with you and i would use the example of so much of it comes right now with you know so much discussion with the coronavirus pandemic and all the implications of it in our country of 
sort of the definition of what is a leader. And I think uh, the leader is someone who's going to communicate and communicate, even if they don't have all the answers, they need to say, okay, these are things we know, and these are the things that we are working on. These are the things that you need to work on. And um, that's what it will be in the sense of, I think, uh, I agree with what you're saying about, and, and that's what is missing in the sense, because soccer is an imperfect sport in the sense of uh, it hasn't been around long enough. And it's, going, it's sort of gone through several twists and turns and, and what is deemed important so that, you know, there is no clear pathway to the pros because it hasn't been formed yet. I could argue that in the last five years, you're starting to see a few examples of that um, in certain places where that clarity has taken place. I could use the example of, say, FC Dallas, where because of the success they've had in developing players that pretty much in most of Texas, you know, a, a kid understands what the opportunities are and what the pathway they need. I think some of the success of some of the young players going uh, to, uh, to Europe now when they turn 18 is because at an early age, uh, they've now, and their parents have, and they're those around them, which could be a, a coach they had, an uncle, somebody, um, have a better, clear idea of what it takes to be a, to make it and how serious effort that a kid needs to start at a young age. But most, um, you know, most parents don't. And most parents are, are uh, taking their kids along a path blindly because uh, they just don't know. Right. Yeah. And, you know, when, 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 when I look at the Federation and you, and you, you talk about leadership and the communication aspect, which is so important, um, you know, when, when Will Wilson was introduced um, as CEO, um, you had the U.S. Soccer did a teleconference with Will Wilson and Cindy Parlo-Cone, the new president, the first time she had, you know, a teleconference media availability. They did it together. Um, I don't understand why the Federation, whose, whose mission statement and whose bylaws, um, you know, clearly spell out that their, their job is to govern and grow the sport in America, you know, just to sum it up, um, why they don't have more media availability, press conferences, teleconferences, you know, on a regular basis not just during the crisis, but just all the time. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to me why, uh, you know, when, when in many cases the communication is free. I mean, it's getting on the telephone or it's, it's doing a teleconference. Uh, uh, at the very least, it's very, very low cost to pull something off like that. And even to be able to, uh, I know this was a, a topic of conversation in the past, you know, live streaming your board meetings. Um, you know, simple things that could easily be, be, uh, produced, uh, for very little overhead and, and, and bring the Federation into the living rooms and in the mobile devices of its members to, to be more effective at communicating and, and leading, not just during the crisis, but, uh, you know, 
all the time, even when we're not in a situation like this. No, I mean, that's something for you and I who have attended uh, Federation board meetings and have re, uh, reported on them. It becomes very difficult in the sense of, you know, whenever I've done it, I've, you know, I'm amazed at the positive response from people, even the, even the harshest critics of the Federation, just to present information, meaning that what the Federation doesn't understand, I think a lot of times, is that just to have, you know, to get out what they're doing, it solves half their battle. Right. And the point being, as I said before, is that even if, even if they don't have an answer, it's better to say that and, and to go in as much or little detail as they want are, are what are the parameters, what are the issues they're dealing with as they are weighing a decision that needs to be made. That's better than saying nothing because it makes them look like most of the time they have no, never considered things or they have no idea what they're doing. And, and again, you know, also if they're afraid of, of what, you know, that their decision isn't going to be liked, you're never going to have a decision that's going to be uh, agreed with a hundred percent. But, you know, to explain what you're doing is going to um, win you a lot of support. And it's going to, you know, it's going to, um, you know, create what I would just, for lack of a better word, sympathy that isn't there now because, there, you know, this goodwill hasn't been built up. Right. Yeah. And look, uh, for, for, the, for those of us that are, are more um, akin to me in the, we want to see, U.S. soccer reformed and improved, and we and, and we like to see some of these ideas that we feel like would make American soccer better. I can speak for myself, and I know a lot of people who who you know are like minded. Ultimately, like we want American soccer to succeed. We don't want it to fail. We want it to be better than it ever has been. We want to root, you know, for our national teams, and we want to be proud of our federation. Um, you know, I remember, uh, when Eric, when Alda was running for president in the 2018 presidential election cycle, uh, he and I had, uh, a lot of conversations about the feeling even of the national team players, uh, in the past. And we see what's going on at, at the moment with the U S women's national team lawsuit. Uh, as well, this this feeling like you're proud to wear the uniform to to represent your country, but you're not necessarily thrilled with the federation you're having to do it with. That uh, there's always been a little bit of this kind of adversarial uh, relationship, and it seems like with the the recent uh, decision to terminate the development academy. There, there's a lot of development academy clubs, uh, many of which have said we were left in the dark. We didn't even know what was going on until it got announced. The program was terminated. They never asked for us to be involved in the, in the decision, any communications in the process. And, 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 and you know, th these are clubs that have invested time and resources into, you know, becoming a DA club and being in the program. And, I'm, you know, I'd, I've heard and spoken to several who said, look, we, we've all, we offered to help offset some cost or take some more cost on ourselves versus the Federation to make the, uh, 
program more sustainable if that was a budgetary issue that was really causing some issues. So, you know, it, it, it just seems like the posture of the Federation in the past and, you know, with Will Wilson and, and Cindy Cohn, they've got an opportunity to change this. But so far, there's not been, at least in my view, enough uh, transparency and outreach to the members and the stakeholders to change that perception and culture. And I, I really think, uh, as you pointed out, that is such a big part of this, that we may not always agree with an outcome or a specific decision, and, and likely you'll never get consensus across the country. I mean, that's just part of being a leader. You have to be used to that. And I accept that. However, um, you do yourself a major disservice when you don't reach out to people and just at least let them speak, let them, let them give you the feedback, bring them into the process. And then you can still look them in the eye at the end and go, look, I get it. I hear you. I know it. It, you know, it's terrible. It sucks. It's not what you want to hear, but this is how we have to go with this decision. Fine. But just, you know, be more inclusive. I think inclusion, we see how that, lack of inclusion has you know caused cultural issues uh, in and throughout the federation for quite some time and you know I, I think that that lack of inclusivity when it comes to the media and having regular media availability of the ceo and the president i think would go a long way in helping things no, I, I agree and and, and uh, you know it goes back a long time in saying the development academy or last year they decided to tier the upper boys division. And again, it was a decision that literally the clubs found out about when the release went out, you know, meaning uh, there was no clear perception that uh, this was coming down or what would be the reasons for it. And again, to give uh, clubs an idea of, you know, what, you know, why it was, you know, what were the criteria for, quote, tearing them more than just, you know, a decision that, you know, where it wasn't necessarily clear why in some cases a team was in the top, another team was in the bottom. And, and it goes to the point where, you know, at, you know so much at the, at the youth level would be resolved quite easily if you had some form of, of a relegate, relegation system obviously you would deal with some issues like do you go by the uh the age group or, or you know the birth year or the age meaning from year to year but but it it would it would create clarity for it and and uh you know solve a lot of problems yeah and, and I, so we're, I we're, we're parents, you know the, and again part of the problem has been and it goes back to the quote wins and losses and the and what you know, going back to 2007, where the you know um, the federation talked about this huge problem of trophy collecting, and that's a huge problem in all sports. You know, my son played baseball and uh, started out tra not traveling but playing in, in, in tournaments beyond his little league. You know, when he was eight or nine with his friends, and I started reading about it, and it was amazing how these leagues and 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 competitions. Uh, propped up just to create new opportunities for, quote, trophy collecting. So it's a huge problem in, in American 
youth sports. But again, in this case, you know, that, you know, the wins and losses will become an end result in a, in a promotional allegation system. But it, again, especially if you start out at a young age and at a local level, it will be less, um, you know, less severe in terms of the consequences and, and be something that can, that can become ingrained in the, the, you know, the system of, of creating competition because especially at the young level, uh, so much is, is the need to have competitive balance, so to speak, and that, you know, uh, that kids can play, you know, games where they're, where they're not getting slaughtered or winning 10 nothing. Yeah. And, and when it comes to that, I mean, like, you know, Barcelona's academy is playing in a, in, in a local region. They're not playing all the clubs of La Liga. And they do occasionally, you know, go up against local teams and they, they slaughter them. And I get it. But it, I'm, I'm pretty sure Barca's academy is, has done a decent job of producing players. My, my argument would be that, you know, there are ways to, to do both, to create those competitive um, and innovative soccer uh, labs all across the country um, by by not basically sterilizing the tactical uh, education and saying it's only going to be four three three and it's only going to be this, you know, allowing clubs to have a, a, a personal identity of how they want to play tactically, formationally, etc. Leave that to the clubs. But one of the things that you could do as a federation, where I think their their role from an administration standpoint. Uh, would be better served rather than trying to, um, you know, micromanage development, create environments where development can flourish. And, and it doesn't sound like it's that big of a difference in, in the way that it's worded, but it is, it's, it's massively different because you're allowing independent clubs and organizations to experiment and figure out what development works for them. And, and to your point about the promotion relegation aspect, and, and you don't want to overemphasize winning at all costs, that's, that's true. But one of the things that you can also do to, to be a check and balance where the Federation uh, could provide some oversight and accountability and not have massive budget deficits where they're paying you know, travel and, and running the actual league, they're administering the league and, and overseeing the structure, would have been to, to, you know, basically say to each club that's going to put their teams into the academy system, okay, give us your club methodology. Show us what you're teaching at U19, at U17, at U15. Show us how that, those dots are connected for you. Whatever that is, right? If it's, a, yeah. if it's an Atletico Madrid, Diego Simeone philosophy, uh, if it's a Pep Guardiola philosophy if it's if it's you know a, a direct philosophy of, of we're going to play long we're going to play like this is and we're going to build our teams and fine that that can be your club identity if that's what you want to do and if players want to play in that environment that's cool that, that that's up to you but show us how you're teaching what you're teaching and connecting the dots um, because all of those playing styles do have aspects tactical aspects that could be and should be taught. And, if, and, and so if you tied that in with a club's application to be in the program, 
And then you did allow the on-field results to be what they are. They, you know, it happens, you know, you win, great. If you lose, great. If you draw, great, whatever. But you, you start to balance out a little bit of the development and the oversight rewarding, you know, uh, clubs who do develop players and those players get signed. So that's where, you know, that, that conversation of solidarity payments and training compensation, some, some program like that, like a club development reward program uh, could, could have been instituted. And I think in, when, when that approach is taken, you can balance out a little bit of the worries of we're going to abandon teaching soccer just to get trophies um, while at the same time not micromanaging the, you know, specific lessons that are taught at a club, right? We're just saying you got to have something. Show us what you're doing uh, so it's not completely disorganized and by the seat of your pants. Uh, but at the same time, we're not going to tell you exactly what has to be in your curriculum, right? So my wife's a teacher, and, and one of the things that's been a kind of a buzzword in education for, for quite a while is, is the word standards. So they don't tell you exactly what your lesson plans have to be. They just tell you you have to meet these standards by the end of each academic school year with your, with your classes. So if U.S. soccer would approach all soccer, professional, adult, youth soccer, with that mentality, like, here are the standards. Here are the things, if we're talking specifically about youth soccer and development, here are the standards we're looking for. Now, you figure out how you want to accomplish those standards. You know, you figure out exactly what kind of style of play and, and club philosophy and methodology you want, you want to undertake. That's under, up to you. If, you. if you like the Dutch method, go there. If you like the Barcelona way, go there. If you like the South American way, go there. We, we, we don't care. That's your job. Innovate, grow, do what you do and be you. That's cool. But you've got to still meet these standards, whatever those standards may be, like being able to show a club methodology uh, on paper, that, that could be one of the standards, right? That you have to have included in your methodology certain benchmarks or milestones or the way that a club is figuring out how to track the development of a player, maybe it's player retention, whatever. You can create those standards and then, and then approach the game from more of an administration standpoint rather than the way they, they, they went with the development academy. Um, when you look at where we are, the aftermath, it's over, at least for now, with the Development Academy. Um, where do you think, where do you see this going? There are rumors swirling all over the place about this league be, being formed and MLS doing this and MLS partnering with this organization. And blah, I mean, it's just all over the place. What, what are you hearing? What do, what, do you, uh, what are you thinking might happen here in the aftermath? Um. I mean, right now you have, uh, I don't call it a war, but, you know, you have now basically three groups figuring out how to align. You have, you know, uh, MLS clubs, which, you know, have, you know, a lot invested in this, you know, millions of dollars invested in, in you know, tens of millions of dollars invested in, in complexes for their kids and all this stuff and, and figure out what to do 
you have the ECNL, which has been around a while. ECNL has already attracted a number of teams. Then you have probably 50 or so DA cl clubs that are deciding what to do. And I think in the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, the hard part is because the Federation, you know, left it up to them two weeks ago to figure out what they do on their own, that they, they among themselves are having to decide what they want to do. In some cases, you have club, you have, say, in the Northeast, a lot of the GA clubs have banded together and are agreed that whatever happens, it will go together. Um, you have um, issues of, do you go 10 months versus something less than 10 months, meaning do you go high school or no high school? I think that's one of the dividing lines right now um, with DA movement. And, uh, and so that a lot of them are trying to figure it out. And on top of that, you have this, you have tremendous pressure that clubs are facing from their parents because they quote need to decide when at the same time they have no idea what they're going to do themselves because of the coronavirus and any number of issues that can impact a family, whether it's employment, whether it is ability to move around, whether it is, uh, you know, not knowing, you know, how involved they can be in their children's lives more or less going forward in, uh, in this, in the sports. Um, you know, so that's something that all, there, there's just so many issues up in the air that make it hard right now for um, uh, clubs to decide. But I think by the beginning of next week, we'll start to see, you know, some answers in terms of where clubs are moving. And sort of the irony is a little bit is that, you know, MLS and moved and going, this is to the Barcelona example a little bit, is MLS clubs were concerned about, were quote concerned about the competition they were getting, which led to the uh, cheering at the upper level last year. And so now a lot of the clubs that they uh, want to partner with are the clubs that, that in effect they said weren't good enough to play last year. Right. And, and uh, you know, part of the reasons for that is that they need, they need partners to play with. And, uh, you know, local, they need clubs to play with to begin with. Right. But at the same time, even more so, since no one knows, you know, how soon um, clubs will be able to travel, they need local partners to be able right. to fill out a schedule. And so is that something in the Northeast that's easy? And that, as I said, you know, uh, I've said before that um, you can get from Boston to Washington reasonably well. And that, that whole corridor makes uh, soccer um, very strong and always very strong. But, but that ability to move around isn't true, say, in the West Coast, where you really have three pockets. You have the Northwest, which mm -hmm. is mostly Seattle, a little bit Oregon, Northern California, which is the Bay Area where I live, and then you have Southern California. But then you have pockets, say, in Arizona, where um, you know, to get from Tucson or Phoenix to LA or from Las Vegas to LA, you can do, but it's, it's, it's a hike. Yeah. Um, but then you have someone like say uh, Utah where, you know, the real salt Lake has had a development program for many years, very, you know, produced some good players. Um, their owner, had, you know, you know, spent $80 million on a, 
on a, on not only a complex, but a high school and dormitories, you know, the whole nine yards of this. Um, but, but, you know, for them or for somewhat, you know, um, other areas, they're so isolated that, that it's very hard to do a lot of travel, um, to do a lot without traveling. But the point being that to a certain degree, we can't solve every, every problem of every, you know, every uh, local community at this time. Um, and I would use the example of other sports where, you know, just because you were isolated in, a, in, a, in an area because it was more rural or because of the, the population within the state doesn't mean over the number of years you didn't have athletes come through, come through that were great athletes. It just took time and it took the fact that uh, the local structure was strong enough to support them. Um, and that's something, again, with soccer, we're trying to solve every problem uh, right now where it's going to take any number of generations for those problems to be solved. And so, uh, you know, we can move forward, but we're not going to expect that everyone's going to have it perfect. And at the same time, we should not expect that to do this, we have to have 15-year-old kids getting on a plane every two weeks on a, on a, on a you know, hour, two-hour flight. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I have, I've debated some people on that, that flight piece uh, quite a bit. I'm just like, you, do you not understand how crazy this is? <laughs> that, you're, that you're demanding that a 15-year-old kid to play American youth soccer is required to get on an airplane. Now, I get, you know, like uh, in the summers, your son played baseball, the, the Little League World Series, right? <laughs> That that's a once a year, um, you know, tournament. That's a an international tournament, and you. This may be your one chance to to play in the tournament. Um, usually, it's that twelve year old age bracket where your team may may make it. You know, through all of the local qualifying tournaments in the regional tournaments, et cetera, to, to make it to the little league world series. That's the exception. And, and, and that's not the rule when you're playing little league baseball, you're not getting on an airplane and regularly flying around to play other baseball teams. That's a, uh, you know, during the summer, that's that kind of that one off event. So I get, you know, taking MLS players and, and high level DA players, talent at 14, 15, 16 years old. And, you know, once a year, maybe twice a year, you get on an airplane and you go play a showcase event, a showcase tournament or some kind of, you know, like uh, La Liga Promises, right, that normally takes place in December. And it's been hosted in Miami a few times. And they bring over their under-12s to play um, in in a tournament with a few American Academy teams have played. Uh, in that as well. I, I get I get that being the exception. Where I have the issue with the whole plane trip and the long hours upon hours in a car to play a game is that should be the exception and not the rule. I just don't I don't think looking at player development that a player is better served driving six hours one way to play a match than to stay home and play another team, you know, one extra time or two extra times. Like 
I don't think the level is that drastic that that should be a regular part of your schedule. So, you know, if the idea of your league is that you play more of a, uh, a local regional type of format where you're, you're not having to get on airplanes regularly. And then you have, you know, a few windows throughout the year where there's a showcase event or a, a big cup tournament or something like that in the summertime, like what we've seen with the little league world series over the, over the decades, then that, that would, I, you know, would make sense to me to go, okay, Hey, that's cool. You qualified through your, your league experience. You, you, you qualified for this tournament. It's not just a, another like parent yourself on the back trophy chase. Um, we, we won the such and such shootout tournament. You know, I played three games and I got a, I got a trophy. It's like, for what you played three games. I mean, like, why are we celebrating the trophy? Now, if you qualified because of your league play and then, and then you got into a showcase event and then, and that led to something, then, you know, that becomes more of an exception versus a rule thing. And I, I think that's where we may be forced to go in American youth soccer for, for at least a little while, because I think with all of the pandemic situations, um, I think there's a lot of those uh, tournaments and cups that have been part of the American youth soccer ecosystem uh, that are going to be either a lot smaller or completely canceled because of uh, travel restrictions and the economic impacts of the coronavirus, et cetera. What, what are your thoughts on how this kind of shakes out in terms of the, the youth soccer ecosystem and, and the, and the, inability to travel longer distances, afford hotels, et cetera. Um, that is, you know, what you're saying is really that there's a couple of parts of that. There's the, just tournament, you know, tournaments where people travel to, there's the quote showcases where, where you're showcasing, uh, your players or in this case, parents or children for, for, you know, mostly for college coaches. And I agree that, that that's, that's something that if it, if it stopped for two years, obviously I think we want to make sure that kids, especially say kids in, in, you know, high school, sophomore cycles, juniors, high school, seniors uh, who want to have um, pursue uh, college soccer for all the good reasons that exist as, as a opportunity to participate in a college activity, still do it. And still have that chance, but I believe that that can that, that can happen without them having to go to five showcase tournaments around the country. Um, if you look at the federation budget related to the development academy, um, I believe that more than half the budget, half the nine point four million dollars of direct development academy. Uh, spending that has now been eliminated was for five showcases they had over the course of the year. All those didn't need to take place. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, and it goes against a little bit what they were trying to solve, which was by 2007, you had teams whose primary goal was to, as we say, collect trophies. And that collecting trophies meant they went to a tournament which was now the priority in their scheduling where they would play four or five games over 
you know, say five to seven days, a crazy schedule. And that was their be all and end all of their soccer activity, which the Federation correctly said had to, had to stop. And, and a little bit, obviously the, the emphasis became much more on, on training as opposed to playing, although that in of itself, you know, created some different problems of needing a lot more coaches you had to pay to uh, train kids over the course of a period. To me, it eliminated the good things um, of, of parental working with their children as coaches because they no longer, if they were working, could afford to be at practice four or five times a week, especially now as you have so many parents who have grown up with the sport because they were, uh, you know, kids themselves. Um, but um, if there were no showcases for the next two years, um, it'll be interesting to see what, you know, what the effect is on this, on, on soccer and, and the, the outcome that, that kids and their parents want. And I, my sense is, is that in most cases, it will be that it um, ended up pretty much okay. And I can say that for myself as a parent of a, of a child who, you know, grew up playing baseball. I could, I, a couple of points I would make is he grew up in the, we grew up, we were in the Bay Area. And until he was a junior in high school, we never flew anywhere. We never had to drive more than an hour. We were fortunate in that Northern California is a sports rich community, but whether it was Sacramento to the east, uh, Santa Rosa to the north or San Jose, um, an hour south, we could, we, we could drive an hour and play all the baseball we ever wanted to do. And it wasn't until our son was a junior going into a senior in high school that we took a trip, trip to San Diego. And then the next fall, he took a trip to Las Vegas for a baseball tournament. But that was it. And, uh, you know, so I think for and, – and, and my point being that in the end, our son played uh, – junior college baseball. He played division two baseball. Uh, he's now living in the Netherlands where he, un, until the coronavirus shut it down, his first job um, in the Netherlands was coaching two baseball teams. And so my point being that uh, his experience ended up as a great experience, whether it's from a uh, baseball point of view, from a social point of view, whether a college point of view. And I think that's something that, that parents, uh, lose sight of a, a lot of times and that these showcases mean that not only do they have to go to a showcase, but they have to go to two or three or four or five because they're not going to go to one showcase and a coach is not going to say, okay, I've, you know, well, we love you and we're going to have you come to our school. But, but it's that search, endless search for something better that um, has driven this industry that's created so much of the excesses that, you know, have, you know, continue a lot of these problems. And again, I will go back to the DA in the sense of, you know, what would have happened, you know, what, you know, what would happen if the, if the Federation had gone back to the clubs and said, okay, you know, uh, we got to, we got to cut $5 million out of, out of this, out of our budget, not 10 million. When it would, can we survive if we don't do our showcases? And I'll bet you, you know, uh, it might not might not be an easy sell um, in some cases because it, because you have these mega clubs which 
have got so much money that they can pay for their kids to, uh, you know, for their travel. But the point being that I think everyone would have lived with that and uh, perhaps gone forward. And it's the same example right now. One of the issues where we've been covering is you have a lot of uh, colleges, Division One level, where they are facing, you know, incredibly diff- difficult decisions because of, of shortfalls in revenue uh, related to the coronavirus. A lot of them are worried about what will happen if football doesn't come in the fall. And uh, they would like to cut they want to waiver so they can cut the, max, the minimum number of sports that are required, that w- which, if passed, would make uh, men's soccer particularly vulnerable because of the number of kids that are on a program and the fact that they can't do it. Uh, they have, they'd have to cut on the men's side because of Title IX considerations. And I think one of the things that everyone's saying is, okay, well, do you, will it be solved by just um, cutting the program or can we, across the board, cut back on some of the excesses or some of the extra things that we really don't need? Do we need to have, uh, you know, 25 kids travel versus 18? Do we need to have uh, two or three, uh, you know, uh, communications department people, whether it's video or PR, go on a trip? And, and the point being that I think for so much of the, the sports in this country, um, partly because it, it developed over the last 10 years with a very good economy is that uh, there's a lot of excess in there that, that if it was cut back, it wouldn't mean the end of everything for everybody. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I, and I think, I think a lot of people are going to be facing these tough decisions, uh, whether it's colleges, whether it's uh, uh, we've already seen this with the Federation. Um, I mean, uh, you know, even though on the from from the outside, I don't know that I would have made the same decision that Will Wilson made as CEO of of terminating the DA program. Um, I do I do commend him and Cindy Cohn for making a decision uh, because sometimes paralysis by analysis is 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 just as if not more harmful than not making uh, than making the wrong decision. So. Um, you know, looking at the landscape of American soccer, whether we're talking about the professional ranks um, and, and the uncertainties surrounding, you know, MLS schedules and the USL and viability and can they survive and in closed door matches and still operate uh, the youth space, college soccer. I think there's a lot of questions left unanswered that we're just going to have to see how they play out. And, um, and, and I think, I think we're going to be seeing a, a different American soccer ecosystem in, in American space uh, on on several different fronts, at least for the next few months, possibly the next couple of years uh, with everything going on. So, Paul, really appreciate – yeah, you got one last thought for us? No, I, I would just say that I think it's for everyone to, who, who, you know, who's listening, who's involved in – in soccer to think about everything. And I would just tell them to start to think most importantly about everything that's involved in their community, whether it's their club they're involved with, the fields that they use, uh, the activities at their high school, or in some cases, maybe a middle school, and just um, be active in doing the best to support it so that it, it can go forward in the best possible way.
because we can't take anything for granted anymore. That you're absolutely, absolutely correct on that. Well, Paul, I appreciate uh, you uh, stopping by to join the show and give us your thoughts on the American soccer landscape at the moment. Uh, as I said, uh, congrats on entering your, your 50th year of soccer America and uh, definitely look forward to having you back on again in the near future. Best of luck uh, with, uh, with soccer America and uh, how can people find, uh, find a link to the, to the website and subscribe and, and, and get uh, all of your content. Um, you can go to socceramerica.com is our website and uh, by reading a story if you're not already a member uh, all you need to do is give us your email address and you can read start reading three stories free per month and you'll start getting some of our uh, newsletters which will give you an opportunity to see what you do and uh, you can reach me Paul Kennedy at PK edit on Twitter awesome well thanks for coming on the show we appreciate it thank you and, and all the best and I always enjoy being with you uh, we always appreciate you coming on. You and Mike both have uh, made some video appearances now on the show. And, and so it's a, a new chapter uh, with you guys coming on, doing, doing a little video with us uh, for, for the show. So we appreciate that as well. Oh, you're welcome. And I enjoy, I do, I enjoy, in my old age, I enjoy the video a lot more than I do, uh, you know, phone calls for podcasts and radio. Well, there you go. Well, we'll, we'll remember that for the future. Take care. All right. See you, my man. See ya. Thanks for watching the show. Thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate it. As always, big thanks to Paul Kennedy of Soccer America for joining us today. Hope you uh, enjoyed that. We certainly did. We'll be back again tomorrow, same time, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Goodbye. Goodbye.